and welcome to the NK News podcast recorded here in Jeju where I am down for the Jeju Forum 2019 and today is Wednesday the 29th of May 2019 and today my very special guest here in Jeju is Professor Robert Galucci of Georgetown University. Thank you for joining me Professor Galucci. It is my pleasure. Great, it's lovely to meet you. That's our first time to meet and uh, I understand well you've been working on Korean affairs uh, for a long time. forever forever right and you're famous for being the chief US negotiator uh, during the negotiations that led to the agreed framework back in the 1990s some would say infamous but yes i i did lead the US delegation to the talks that resulted in the agreed framework of 1994 at the time what were your expectations of that of that uh, agreement If you mean in the course of the negotiation what did we expect would come from it? No no when, when the agreement was signed what did you think would really you know, do you think it would work were you hopeful? Certainly I was hopeful after spending a year and a half negotiating with the North Koreans I've got to be hopeful when we actually sign a deal. Uh if we translate that hopefulness into a question of whether there was confidence that it would stick mm. um no. Uh, <clears throat> we didn't have a lot of experience with agreements with North Korea for example we had no experience and we we weren't sure whether uh over time the deal would wear well um it did wear for 9 years or 10 years roughly before it fell apart what was the cause of its falling apart well of course that will depend a tiny bit on one's perspective but yes. certainly uh from our perspective the american perspective Uh things started to go bad sometime in the 90s maybe 4 or 5 years after the deal was made when the US intelligence community picked up information that the North Koreans were busy with business with Pakistan the AQ Khan network and were acquiring what is called uranium enrichment gas centrifuge technology secretly the fact that they were doing this uh we knew our intelligence community knew but we did not make known publicly anywhere we certainly didn't tell the North Koreans we watched it and the Clinton administration um uh, indeed had a plan for how they would engage the north persuade them that they needed to stop this activity which was inconsistent with the agreed framework and then we would go on and continue our good relations and this was all going to happen yes. in early in the Gore administration Ah, you may have noted that there was no Gore administration. Something about chance. It it whatever what we had here was a situation in which the Republicans who had been pretty harsh in their criticism of the deal yeah. through the 90s were now in the White House and uh in the Congress. Uh and while they were somewhat enthusiastic initially in essentially crashing the deal, they really had nothing to replace it with and so they did not crash the deal. However, uh after about a year or so, the North Koreans seemed to be increasing the amount of cooperation with the Pakistanis and the US government uh decided to send Assistant Secretary of State Kelly mm. to Pyongyang to essentially confront the North Koreans with our intelligence. And this was the first time that the Americans had said to North Korea, "Listen, we know what you're doing." Correct. Okay. The North Koreans initially uh denied it. Indeed if you ask a North Korean now they will say they always denied it. Um and there is a disagreement over what exactly the correct interpretation yes. I mean that in a linguistic sense the correct interpretation of the North Korean words were. Right. The American interpretation is that the North Koreans said, "Yes, you caught us. We've been cheating 
and we've been doing a deal with the Pakistanis, which is inconsistent with the Ukraine framework. The North Korean interpretation is that they said that the U.S. had failed to fulfill its obligations to normalize relations with the DPRK, uh -huh. and so uh, they had done what they needed to, and if they had done what the Americans claimed they had done, yes. it would have been appropriate in light of what the Americans failed to do in terms of their obligations under the agreement. In the fall, essentially, of uh, 2002, mm. and then the North Koreans uh, stopped cooperating in the framework, the U.S. stopped cooperating in the framework, yeah. and it fell apart. The North Koreans announced they were going to leave the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, they were going to separate plutonium again, they were going to build nuclear weapons, and they were going to test them. And indeed, in 2006, they tested their first nuclear weapon. Yeah, uh, refresh my memory, uh, the fall of 2002 when this first confrontation took place, had President Bush already given his Axis of Evil speech to the State of the Union? So that was... The State of the Union speech was in January of 2002. Okay. And uh, famously, the President uh, thought it a good idea to say that North Korea was one of the points on the axis of evil. Yes. The North Koreans, uh, we have reason to believe, took that rather poorly. <laughs> and it's not that that was the first bit of bad exchange between the Bush administration and the North Koreans, but that was a particularly unwelcome uh, phrasing from the, from the uh, Pyongyang's perspective. Right. They had, the North Koreans had, to give them credit, expressed condolences to the United States after 9-11-2001. Yes. Um, and that came as part of a better relationship between Pyongyang and Washington that had existed for about eight years. Going back to the, uh, the issue of the United States opening a liaison office or something in Pyongyang, I've heard from various people that the U.S. was actually quite close to doing that and that it had, in fact, even already tapped the person who would be that first uh, U.S. representative on the ground in Pyongyang. How close was that to happening and why didn't it happen? First of all, I'd say what you said sounds exactly correct to me. Uh, we had, as we say, fenced off the team that would go in and open the liaison office in Pyongyang. Was Evans Revere one of them? I believe so. I also am fairly sure that we were going to take some space in the old East German. Of course, that's very popular real estate. And of, of course, there was no more East Germany, so there's a very large facility there, which uh, Germany doesn't exactly need all of. Yeah. So that we had a place to go, we had people to go, we had trained them, and we had a plan. Um, the North Koreans had looked for a, a place in Washington for these office. Uh, I don't know whether that was terribly successful or not. They ultimately became disenchanted with the idea. Initially, they were very keen mm. on And we had heard that part of this was their concern about our insistence that we be able to have our people drive up from Seoul to Pyongyang, where the North Koreans had always insisted people fly in from Beijing. Right. Uh, but we wanted people to cross the DMZ. That was one issue. Another was that the North Koreans were concerned that we would use a liaison office as a station for an intelligence collection against them. So there were some concerns expressed, but I don't... I can't say that I know the reason why it never happened. Mm. Or from either, uh, from which side that... Uh... I'm fairly certain it was not from our side. I think I would know that. I think there was a loss of enthusiasm on the part of the North Koreans. So here we are now in 2019. This is, what, 25 years after the agreed framework. 
Uh, we're, we've seen last year and this year some renewed negotiations between the U.S. and North Korea. Um, we had, if you recall, through the Obama years, not made much progress in terms of engaging the North. Yeah, the strategic patience policy. Strategic patience, the creation of a phrase from two perfectly good words to make an awful phrase. <laughs> uh, we might have continued with which was strategic patience, another way of saying containment, an aggressive form of containment that includes sanctions and continued military operations with the South and keeping our alliance um, in a, a condition that uh, makes it a strong deterrent to anything the North may be thinking about that involves military action. So that might have continued, but it was clear that with a new administration, a couple of things were coming together for the North. One thing was that they had been working very hard to develop long-range ballistic missiles so they could target continental the United States. And indeed, the New Year's speech by Kim Jong-un in January 2017 referred to that objective, being able to target continental the United States with ICBMs, armed with not only nuclear, but we think probably thermonuclear weapons. Mm. So this is a, a big deal from the American perspective. And so that capability, uh, if it were to be realized by the North, would create a vulnerability for us. It was also becoming clear that the North Korean leader had plans for his country uh, that didn't fit very well with an aggressive sanctions regime uh, with North Korea remaining a pariah state in the national community. And he wished to get out from under that situation. So we went into 2017 with the North doing what it does when it anticipates eventually having negotiations. It raises the level of threat so that it has something to negotiate with. The slight difference here is that they were not dealing with the precise and careful Barack Obama. They were dealing with the somewhat more exciting Donald Trump. Mm. And the result was we had a 2017 in which there was a lot of rhetoric being exchanged, the likes of which I had never heard over more than 20 years in government service, uh, listening to people talk about their nuclear weapons. Uh, so it was a dangerous year, 2017. Yeah. Um, but we went into 2018 on a new note, uh, and I would say partially because of some very active diplomacy by uh, President Moon uh, here in Seoul. Sure. Um, and so we went to a summit in Singapore, uh, which I don't think one could say had much substance to it, but it did have, have two de facto arrangements where some of the military exercises that really annoyed, and that's probably not a statement, annoyed the North Koreans uh, were suspended, the U.S. ROK exercises, and some of the missile tests of the North, and apparently all of the nuclear weapons tests were suspended by the North Koreans. Mm -hmm. All this being a de facto outcome of talks in which an era of good feeling seemed to be ushered in yeah. uh, as a result of the direct meeting of these two. So I go through all this because we then went along in this process, and people would always ask old guys who had negotiated with North Korea and maybe other countries about the use of symmetry uh, as understood by President Trump as opposed to everybody else. Yeah. And this was different. And uh, we all, I think pretty much all said, it's whatever works. And if this works, we should recognize it. But we don't expect it to. There's a reason why we don't normally send 
uh, the president out to negotiate a deal that can be very complicated, mm -hmm. uh, even for experts. I mean, think how long the Iran negotiations went on with right. experts or our own. Yeah, uh, a year and a half. Yeah, long time. Yeah. So there we have the president going off with uh, you know, a, a bunch of hours on the airplane to get ready for this, but not a lot going on. And then we have, and so with only a photo op coming out of yeah. the Singapore meeting, everybody expected and thought we needed some substance. And substance meant a reciprocal arrangement of some kind. Yeah. That's what everybody seemed to understand, that the U.S. would give something in the area of sanctions, in the area of normalization of relations with the North, give something. And the North would give something in denuclearization back. Yeah. And very little was done in, by way of preparation, though there, was, there were some meetings. And uh, our American working level negotiator, uh, Steve Began, uh, many of us understood, had reached an arrangement with the North. Um, somehow, between that, uh, that, you know, many a slip between cup and lip, yes. between that arrangement and the meeting in Hanoi, the president's mind got changed. Mm. Uh, perhaps it was by the Secretary of State, perhaps it was by the National Security Advisor, but somehow the president went in asking for a big deal rather than a reciprocal steps approach and a big deal in which the North Koreans would go first. They give everything and then we give something. Uh, that was a surprise apparently and it wasn't a welcome surprise. Mm -hmm. uh, so we all witnessed what happened. That was not on. The president said, okay, then I'm leaving. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that uh, Chairman Kim would have liked to have left as well, but he had to stay around until his plane could go, and off they went, or his train. And train, yeah. train. So um, we are in a situation now in which the North Koreans are saying, we will continue to work with you if you are serious and you come with a deal. And if you recall, immediately after the collapse of the talks in Hanoi, the North Korean foreign minister, who was a young man when we did the negotiations uh, in Geneva a long time ago, um, he had a press conference in which he said, this is what we were prepared to give. This is what we expected to get. So there are no kind of secrets here. This is not a, a difficult to understand subject at the level at which it was being dealt with. We just didn't do what the North Koreans had come to expect we would do. Mm. And he said, we need this. We need, and they particularly were looking or sanctions relief. And by the way, in this country that we are now in, uh, the Republic of Korea, they would like some sanctions relief that would allow them to improve their relationship with North Korea and do some business which the sanctions now prevent them from doing. Yeah. So all this goes to say that if one wants to handicap the future on this, uh, one needs to get inside the mind of President Trump. And that is beyond my capacity. Now, the, um, the uh, perpetual four-yearly cycle of presidential elections has, in some ways, uh, already begun, uh, in that the uh, Democrats are already looking for a candidate. And so very soon, I suppose, uh, uh, President Trump will be looking forward to the 2020 uh, presidential elections. Do you imagine or hope that there'll be uh, any more progress in North Korea-U.S. relations before the next presidential election? President Trump has an incentive 
to uh, put some substance behind his posture, his claim that he has averted a war uh, that if it were not for him, as he has said, mm. we would have been at war with <clears throat> North Korea. And he is also invested, has also invested in his relationship with Chairman Kim. So yes, I think the U.S. will try to uh, re-engage the North. I don't think it's going to work at the working level mm. because the U.S. has been trying that. There are lots of indications that Steve Began, who's a very capable gentleman, is not getting his phone calls answered uh. from, the, from the North. Uh, and that one of the things you get from insisting on symmetry as the mode of interaction is that you caponize everybody else. Nobody has any standing except the President of the United States. So this suggests that if the President really does wish to re-engage, um, two things would have to happen. One, he would have to engage again at the level uh, of that chief of state, yeah. and uh, he would have to come presumably ready to deal in a way that the North Koreans would agree is acceptable to them. This is the result of a top-down approach. As right. you know, we were critics of it for a reason. Yeah. And that's because it leaves us in a situation of waiting for a summit meeting to work out the details. Right. Uh, you know, when we did the agreed framework, there was no meeting ever between President Clinton and uh, either Kim Il-sung or Kim Jong-il, yeah. who followed him. I signed on behalf of the United States and the Vice Prime Minister Kang Soo-ju signed on behalf of the North Koreans. And that was a reasonably formal um, not a treaty, but a reasonable formal arrangement that created the framework without, without anybody higher than a lowly assistant secretary of state, which is what I was signing for the United States. Now, you're no longer in, uh, in government anymore. Uh, do you still have contact with people uh, at state or, uh, or even at the White House? Um, I do not have any contact with anybody at the White House. Uh, but I am guilty of continuing contacts with people who uh, work at state. And uh, are you hearing anything that, uh, from them that is giving you uh, cause for concern or, or giving you hope? I don't think I'm, uh, I mean, having said what I just said, which is technically true, um, I'm not an insider on what the government is thinking. And I can't, I, uh, not, I probably wouldn't in, a, in an interview, but I, even if I was willing to, I don't have a, a good feel for the texture of the, what I would call the interagency process. I'm told when I've asked about this from those I still speak to, that there really is no interagency process oh, yeah. with this government. I don't actually know that though. Yeah. I don't know uh, how things are worked out. Uh, when there was a Secretary Mattis over at Defense, I know that, and Secretary Tillis over at State, I know that they met along with the National Security Advisor. So I know there was that kind of a process going on, not as frequently as in the four or five administrations I was familiar with. Uh, but right now, I don't know how things are thought through. That's why I made the somewhat flip comment about this is really in the mind of the president. Right. It's, it's unknown to me, for example, just how much influence the National Security Advisor, who is, who is known to be very skeptical, this is John Bolton. Uh, John about. Bolton, uh, very skeptical of negotiations as a modality for dealing with North Koreans. Have you ever met him? Oh yes. Oh, yes. Okay. What's he like on a personal level? Um, he's very serious about his work. 
Um, he's very certain. He's right about his perspective. So he has a moral certainty. For me, I'm comfortable with the word certainty. Okay. Um, and when I say that, I mean, of course, more certainty than I generally think any of us should have about these yeah. kinds of things. And he has a, a disdain for, not. I don't think I'm, I'm reasonably using that word, disdain for multilateral uh, efforts at solving problems. Mm. And probably, from my perspective at least, a tad too much enthusiasm for the use of force. Right. Uh, over the years, have you been involved in uh, Track 1.5 or Track 2 diplomacy with North Korea? Yes. Do you still continue uh, that sort of activity? I do it and have done it a number of times uh, since I left government when I thought it could be useful to the administration, whatever party it was, and uh, to advance their work because at the end of the day, what we call 1.5 because we send um, has-beens like myself and the North Koreans send their current negotiators. So it's not track one or track two, it's sort of in between track 1.5. But each time I've done this, I've contacted someone at the State Department to make sure that they do not believe I'm crossing wires. Right. Because it would be a bad thing if they couldn't tell you know, who exactly is speaking for the United States of America. Sure. If there's nothing going on and we could spark something with an NGO-driven right. enterprise, then why not? You know, sort of nothing lost. Yeah. Do you still uh, have connections with North Korea, for example, at the uh, mission to the United Nations in New York? I do not. I don't maintain any connections with North Koreans. The last direct contact I think I had with North Koreans was a Christmas card huh. that I sent to Kang Suk Kyu a few years after the negotiations ended. And he's now passed on? He has. Okay. Uh, in the last couple of minutes, I wonder if you could uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, your experience at the U.S. Korea Institute. Uh, U.S. Uh, KI, which was a, um, a hybrid entity, as best I can tell, had a, a dual mission, actually. It was uh, set up at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, or SICE, uh, in uh, downtown Washington. And one of the things, the most important thing, maybe in a way it did, was it was the um, umbrella entity for the academic program in Korean studies at uh, SICE. And Korean studies are located at Georgetown, where I teach. They're at other schools around the country. And it was um, a good idea for Johns Hopkins SICE, which has a world-class um, professional program in national affairs, to have Korean studies. And USKI was an entity uh, largely, maybe about 80%, funded by an entity of the South Korean government. Uh, and so the Korea funds, Institute for Economic Policy? Um, I believe that's correct. And the money would come to Johns Hopkins and it would be used to uh, create courses for and language study as well as cultural and political courses in Korean studies. That was one thing right. that U.S. Canada did. The other thing it did was to provide a venue for people coming from South Korea to the United States to speak. Uh, it was also someplace where we would, when a topic would come up, perhaps a ballistic missile test or something like that. Uh, we wanted to have a discussion, bring in the press, bring in experts in Washington. So it was a venue for discussion. Not that Washington is without other venues, but it was another one yep. to do this. And it was also, and this is not a non-trivial point, it was also the home of um, the website, 38 North, yep. which is something that many of us rely upon. It's run by Joel Witt and Jenny Town. Yes, very famous. That do, uh, do a very good job. So, so uh, all that good activity was 
defunded by the North Korean government. South Korean government. Excuse me, that's right, by the South Korean government, just seeing if you were paying attention. Yes. Um, this was a year into your uh, tenure as chairman. About half, halfway through, the, I, I began to understand that there was unhappiness in some quarters of the South Korean government, though I never could quite figure out whether it was in the, the Blue House or whether it was in the, the legislative arena or whether it was in one of the entities like Kiev. I don't know, but I know I was told of some unhappiness. Uh, I was chairman of USKI, so I tried to uh, respond. Uh, but when it came to a matter of personnel, um, I have a very sensitive uh, reactions to uh, any foreign government funding it, a university entity yeah. wishing to try to control that entity. I, when I was dean at Georgetown for 13 years, I had many governments funded my regional studies programs. Uh, and I needed to be quite clear that um, governments didn't get say over academic activity, that there was something called academic freedom and the university would protect it to its death and needed to do that for its integrity. John, Johns Hopkins the same. And, yeah. and I said, you cannot, to the South Korean government, you cannot tell us about personnel. You can't tell us about what we will do. You can fund, and if you're unhappy with the quality of what we're doing, you can defund. Right. But you do not get control of an academic entity. So, are you able to say which office of the of the South Korean government it was that was telling you to fire certain people? Well, I can tell you that I was visited by representatives from Kiev, and I believe the NRC. Um, what, what's the NRC? It's the Research Council, I okay. think, National Research Council, I think. I was, had conversations with representatives from the South Korean Embassy in Washington. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there were individuals, I was told, who were close to the most senior levels of government who came to see me and told me, again, what I needed to do yeah. if, if I continue, wanted to continue to get funding from, from the South Korean government. And I was unwilling to do those things. Yeah, the, uh, the South Korean Chosen Ilbo, I believe, uncovered or revealed some emails uh, between uh, certain secretaries or aides in the Blue House uh, referring to this whole incident at the USKI. Uh, and so it does seem like you had people from various quarters coming to you and trying to tell you who to hire and who to fire. Yeah, no, I felt, uh, I, I didn't feel uh, that I wasn't receiving enough attention. I, I, I received a lot of attention from the South Korean government, none of it welcomed. Um, there was nothing I could find that was inappropriate going on. There was nothing uh, involving funds. There was nothing involving poor work or anything like that. They wished to express the influence they thought they had by means of their funding. It was utterly inappropriate to do that with an American university, and I so told them. The good news, of course, is that at least for part of the function, 38 North yep. the website moved very quickly over to the Stimson Center, uh -huh. uh, and many of the staff of USKI went with it and ha have a place to work, and that's very good. I don't know how the Korean Studies program has fared at SICE, um, but uh, that was also dependent on uh, USKI at the time. And you yourself, did you step down from your position uh, as chairman of USKI? I certainly did. It was much to step down from. It was defunded and there was no more U.S. So, okay. <laughs> it dissolved, yeah. Uh, do you see it as part of a, a general pattern by the South Korean government to try to uh, control the narrative about itself uh, overseas? I, I don't know. 
Um, it, it, I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying I just don't know that to be true. Yeah. I, I, I can't believe that, that the South Korean government, which is very sophisticated, can't tell the difference between something like KEI uh, in Washington. The Korea Economic Institute. Uh, which they expect to have a fair amount of influence over. Sure. Uh, and something like USKI, which is part of a university, where they should not expect to have much substantive influence over. So that's really the rub. Uh, Professor Gallucci, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I'm aware that uh, you're uh, fighting uh, jet lag and hunger pangs, so I'll let you uh, go off to lunch now. Thank you so much and enjoy the, uh, the Teacher Forum. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you.